Welcome to Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian. And this is Michael. Today, we've got a special guest with us, Wes from Alpha Architects. And Wes is actually a Marine as well. So we're going to chat a little bit about the Marine Corps. But first, I want to say welcome to the show, Wes. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Honored to be here. So the way we always like to start the podcast off is really give us the introduction. How did you first come to the market? What was your first interaction with, uh, with stocks or with the market in general? Um, so mine goes way back uh, till I was actually around 12. Um, so I, I grew up on this cattle ranch in Colorado. And I, I think it was like, or maybe, yeah, when I'm trying to think of the year. This was a long time ago. But long story short, uh, I used to raise 4-H steers. Um, I ended up making like 1200 bucks, which was a, you know, a bunch of money for a kid. And my dad is obviously a ranch manager. He doesn't know much about financial markets, but I had a, a late grandmother who was like a huge Warren Buffett fan. And, and so he obviously said, Hey, go talk to grandma Ginny and ask her, like, she's the only one in our whole family, you know, either meet or extended that knows anything about finance. I just know about, you know, rustling cattle up and all that good stuff. And so she actually had me read uh, first Buffettology and then also the intelligent investor. Um, and for whatever reason, like, even though obviously a young kid is not really supposed to be into that kind of thing, because, you know, I was into Nintendo and everything else, like everyone, everybody uh, also that age, but I just really thought it was cool. Um, and frankly, you know, from growing up on a ranch, I was just tired of working all the time because <laughs> I used to have to go out and like deal with the irrigation and my dad would, would always just say, hey, you know, you should learn about that finance investing stuff. And so maybe that's what it was. But I was just tired of being broke and doing manual labor. Um, and, so, and I also kind of found it interesting. But basically, yeah, when I was around 12 and I bought like a Janus 20 fund, uh, you guys probably don't even know what that is. But back nope. then, yeah, Janus was like a really famous uh, mutual fund company uh, back in the 90s. They're still around, uh, but they're kind of busted at this point. Um, and I remember I bought it and what was, that was probably like from the early nineties up to late nineties is it was like basically a tech type fund. Um, you know, it was, it had a good run. So I just assume, Oh, that's pretty awesome. You just put your money in stuff and it goes up a lot. Um, you know, I should probably learn more about this. So, so that, that was my initial kind of intro was through my grandmother when I was a kid. And, and that was kind of the initial and then having some good luck with the with the Janus 20 fund. Um, that's where it all kind of started way back. Did you end up day. cashing that out as a kid or do you hold it? No, I don't. My life? parents wouldn't let me. I do remember that. But the minute I turned 18, um, which is right around it was in 98. Um, that was right during the Internet bubble. And I just got lucky because I actually I hadn't I hadn't done like actual value investing. I just always read about it. thought it made sense, even though I owned Janus 20, which was the anti-value fund. So I don't remember how much it was, but it's probably a decent amount, like 10 grand, which ton of money, uh, you know, well, even today it's probably still a ton of money, but back then it was, it was a lot for me. Um, and I started doing value stuff, but that was right at the end of the internet bubble when value stuff just didn't work, but it turned out that it would work very soon. And so I had kind of two opportunities to think I was a genius where just dumb luck bought like the Janus fund that made a lot of money because it got caught in the internet bubble wave. And then just happened to be kind of at the end of the internet bubble. But I, but naturally I was a value investor. And so the first stock I bought was Swisher sweet cigar, which you guys know what Swisher sweets are. Um, Okay. Anyways, it was like old a big cigar smoker. I, I had no idea. Yeah, it was like old school, like ghetto, cheapo cigars you'd buy at the Quickie Mart or whatever. And okay. I, I used to love them, like when I was a freshman in college and everything. So, and, and they were a company that you know earned really high returns on capital. It was really cheap, and I was like, oh, let's buy it. I, I bought it like six bucks or something, and literally three or four months later, it went to nine fifty. Got bought out probably by like Philip Morris or something. And I was like my first value stock play. So, so I just had this continuous run of just dumb luck. And, and, you know, that led to me actually thinking I knew what I was doing. Um, and then, and then I'll, I'll stop jabbing because the story doesn't, isn't always that happy, but, but my, my initial experiences were all really good. Uh, <laughs> um, 
is long story short. And so you went to college uh, geared towards the markets as well. Is that right? Yeah. So I, so I went to uh, this, this school called the Wharton School here at uh, University of Pennsylvania, which is like very, very focused on, you know, finance and, and they, they call it, they joke it's a vocational school. And I agree with them. Like it's not really going to college. It's like going to a school that basically preps you up for the vocation of finance. Um, Isn't that where Donald Trump went to school? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was there, his kids were there. Um, and he actually at the time was trying to put his name on it. And, and I think he offered him like 500 mil, which was a ton of money back then. But they just they told him to pound sand because <laughs> back then he was a little bit uh, – you know, he, he's a little bit electric and, and, and people didn't want to touch it. But I, I do remember he, he I guess he tried to like change the name to like the Trump school and he offered him 500 mil. And, and I guess the alumni or whatever told him, no, nah, we're not we're not going to do that deal. Uh, so, but yeah, he, he was a uh, he, he was a, a, a fellow graduate, uh, whether it's good or bad it is what it is. So I, I didn't know that about you, actually. I, I, I'm glad you made the connection, Brian. So you said you went to school with some of his kids? Yeah. 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 Ivanka. Oh. And um, yeah, she was actually one of my marketing classes. I, I was too embarrassed to actually like go talk to her. But I, I definitely like I remember in marketing, I would like she'd sit in the corner and, you know, she's pretty hot. Um, and I was, you know, young guy. So <laughs> but I also just had no confidence to go talk to you know, talk to her because, you know, she's a little bit above my pay grade. But I, I definitely remember like kind of like eyeballing her um, when she was in my section in, in uh, some marketing class or whatever. Um, so, yeah, the, the Trump kids overlapped same time I was there. OK, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that. That's, that's yeah. a great little story. Yeah, well, there's some other stories, but they're not appropriate for <laughs> I don't want. I don't want any. any uh, you got some dirt on some famous people, or yeah, 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 pretty much. But um, it's all rumors, so uh, you know. Cosmic, we won't ask you to confirm or deny anything today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we don't want you to get subpoenaed or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so, and then after college, I, I, I forgive me, my timeline is a little fuzzy. Yeah. Marines, right? You joined the Marines, not too. Well, long. yeah. So, so I have a, a total wacky. Uh, intro to the to the Marine Corps. So basically, I, I, wanted, I do want to get into that because I, I think you and me probably crossed paths, came very close to each other. Yeah. So what happened in my situation is, um, so when I, when I was Wharton, I, I was just really into finance. Like I was actually running like a little fun, like still trying to hustle and all this stuff. But, but then it turned out I, I actually liked finance, like intellectually, like beyond just the making money part. Um, so I started doing a lot of research with the faculty there and I basically became the, like the Wharton faculty data monkey. Um, and, and I, you know, I was just into it. So I put a lot of time into it and and a lot of professors thought I was doing a good job. And then right when I was trying to figure out like, well, what, what should I do when I grow up? They're like, dude, you should be a, you should think about being a professor. Um, and I was like, all right, well, what do you, how's that work? They're like, well, you, you know, you get paid a lot of money to just sit around and do whatever the hell you want. I was like, all right, cool. So how does that work? Well, you got to get your PhD. Um, and so they all recommend, cause they're all from university of Chicago as well. Like half the faculty at the time uh, was from there. Cause, cause uh, university of Chicago just for a reason fuels a lot of the, like the big, you know, quant finance joints. Um, so they said, Hey, you should apply there. Because unlike other programs, like PhD programs are much more relationship based and, and they, you know, they, they actually care about who you know and, and who, who vouches for you. And so that's basically what I did, um, applied there and kind of had the Wart, Wharton faculty basically backing me. Um, and I, obviously I was useful, got in. <laughs> um, and, and, and when you get in those PhD programs, they, you know, they basically pay you to go to school. Uh, which I thought was also pretty cool. So I went directly from undergrad right into the, the University of Chicago PhD program. And then, you know, after doing that for a couple of years, I, I was definitely way over my head, um, you know, because everyone else been around the block or has a master's or way smarter. And, you know, I, I was doing my thing and, and surviving. But, um, you know, probably like yourself, like I always wanted to do, do the service. And, you know, and my original plan was to do it after I graduated, but I got into this damn PhD program 
and had this this full ride. So I was like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Um, but then then kind of getting a little bit of burnout in the first two years of the PhD program. I just I basically asked the PhD director if I could go on a sabbatical, um, join the Marines. And, you know, obviously, I thought, thought most people like go on a sabbatical <laughs> to like go to the Caribbean. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that was not uh, <laughs> that was not my agenda. Um, and so so, yeah, that, that's basically the long story short on how I end up joining the service, basically. Um, yeah, it was midway through the Ph.D. program. It just took a hiatus for four years. And it, hey, that was you went to the dark side. Is that right? What's that? You went to the dark side. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that. Uh, you got I'm it. I'm saying he was an officer, not enlisted. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I went to the dark side. Um, you know, it is what it is. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, it's quite all right. I had to give yeah. you some. I can, I, you can't NJP me. So, like, I feel like I can, mm-hmm. I can give you a hard time here. Oh, yeah, of course. I, I did spend five years in, I enlisted directly out of high school. Yeah. And, and, so what, you, and what, was your, what was your time that you were in? I enlisted, I got in August of 2003 and I left April, 2008. So I was in just yeah. shy of five years. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so we definitely overlapped and, and I'm sure some of your lieutenants, uh, were you in the infantry, infantry or what, what was your MOS? Yeah, I was infantry. Um, I was with first battalion, eighth Marines at first. And then I ended up doing a second plan with RCT two. Okay. Yeah. Oh, dude. I, I mean, I, I'd have to go back into my dead brain cells, but almost certainly I, I, probably went to IOC with some of the, some of your, uh, you know, butter bar second lieutenants that caused you a lot of probably heartache. Uh, <laughs> it was something. I was a weapons company. So I got the silver, at least when I started off, I was, Oh yeah. You got company. the studs. Yeah. Okay. I get the, the first lieutenant. So they've been around the block once or twice. Yeah. 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 First lieutenants kind of know what they're talking about. So um, I won't drop any of their names right here because I haven't consulted with them ahead of time, but yeah, no. And, but you went, you went to Haditha, right? Yeah. Yep. So I spent 2004 from June, 2004 up until October, 2004, I spent at the Haditha dam. I lived at Haditha dam yeah. and I was patrolling uh, Haditha and, and we went up to Rawa and Anna mm-hmm. and I'm trying to Pacquania. think of all the other Pacquania. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I hung out same, same area 2006. So um, hang out in the Palm Groves, um, I, I was with the Iraqi battalion. So, so we, I don't know if they were there when you were there, but, but we were, we were living with the Iraqis, which is just below Haditha dam because the Marines were in the dam there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our job is obviously like go hang out with the Iraqis and, you know, patrol with them, but same idea. Um, so you were on a, were you on a MIT team then? Yeah. Military transition I was team? On a, yeah, I was on a MIT team. Okay. Yep. So I must've just missed you then. So my second deployment was in 2007 Yeah, and I deployed with RCT2. Yep. And I was stationed at Al Assad, yeah. and I was with the um, with the regimental level. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. So, so I was with. Um, I won't drop any names there either. But yeah, we went up. It was so interesting going up and seeing Haditha again. Yep. And you know, we went down to Fallujah, which I went to after I left left Haditha. My first deployment, I went to Fallujah, so I went down to Fallujah. Yeah. Again, and uh, I just lost. I lost the name of the other city that was that's down near Fallujah. Uh, Ramadi, maybe Ramadi. Yes, long, so we went long, yeah, Ramadi sure. as well. So that's really interesting. So how was how was your experience in uh, in Haditha? I understand you were there after a, a controversial the Haditha massacre, as I understand. I think I was there just before that happened. Yeah, yeah. So we we came in there right after I think it was Colonel Jasani and those guys got you know. And there's always two so- sides of the story. I obviously back the Marine side of the story, just having been in that situation. So I always give the benefit of the doubt to obviously the warfighter because no one knows what, what they're having to deal with. Um, you know, and what, and you know, whatever, you know, it sounds like some bad shit happened. And if it really was bad, obviously, you know, people should, you know, get busted, but actually, cause I had the perspective of living with the Iraqis and they had the utmost respect for Colonel Jasani and that battalion beforehand. They're like, they were awesome. They actually knew what they were talking about. They were way more coordinated with the tribes and the sheikhs and they were doing everything right. Like all these new people are screwing it up. So, I mean, it all, all depends on your perspective, but um, it seemed clear to, to at least from the Iraqi perspective that they were doing God's work um, and that maybe we were confused about you know, how you go about business there. Um, 
so yeah, we came in after that and, and obviously everyone was all pissed and you know, what have you. But I, I mean, I personally found it a, a great adventure. I, um, I loved it, man. Like I, I was kind of all in, uh, went native, like, you know, spoke the language. I, I mean, I, you know, a lot of times met people just, there's like, whatever, I'm just going to go sleep in my hooch all day. But I, I just found it as like the ultimate adventure, get to hang out the, you know, foreign military and just learn what they're all about. And, and so I, I thought it was super cool, man. I was, no, I, I'm a hundred percent with you. I, I was just amazed by learning the culture. Yeah. Um, there was one particular, I can't remember what little town we were driving to some little village yeah. right during the middle of, uh, I'm drawing another blank on the, uh, the holy month of Ramadan. There we go. The holy yeah. month of Ramadan, you know, and they fast during the day and they, they, you know, then they have a feast every single night. Yeah. So we're driving down this, this road that runs almost directly east and west. Yeah. And every, and it's just this tiny village. Maybe there's three dozen houses there. Mm-hmm. Every single house, people are out front on their stoop. Kids are playing in their little front yard or dirt lots. And, you know, kind yeah. of people just hand on their stoop and they're, and they're uh, they're holding hands and they're watching the sunset. Yeah. And I was in the gun at the time, so I'm driving through this and I go, "It's Christmas." You know, they're celebrating a different holiday, but yeah, they're yeah. just having their whole family together, and it just that's one oh, yeah. memory I'll always keep with me. Just like how similar we all are, and how like I know we can we can put differences up there all day long, but I was like, yeah. it just struck me as this this fa- all these families are out there together trying to be together and try to share this moment, you know, yeah. they're celebrating a, uh, they're celebrating a different holiday than we happen to be celebrating, but the, yeah. the, the, the meaning of it, getting the family together, was essentially the same. So I'm yeah. with you. I'm glad that you did. And, and you wrote a book about it, right? I'm, I'm ashamed to say I have not read your book yet, but it is on my read list. Yeah. Well, send me, if you shoot me a note, I'll, I'll fire you a signed copy. Uh, I, I do that. I send that to all Marines. Um, just thank them for their service. So easy day. Okay. And that book is called, it's embedded. It, it's called, yeah, it's embedded. Um, and, and that book is basically, uh, we were talking about like Colin Powell earlier. Um, I, I was, I, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm like a war fan, but before just, I just believe Colin Powell when, when he showed me that little, that little canister of white powder or whatever that was going to kill us all. I was like, geez, that seems like a probably good idea. Cause I, I was just naive to understand how it all worked. Um, so I was, I was a very like, God, this seems like a pretty good reason to, to go help out over here. And then as you probably know, like, like once you start learning the culture, learning the people, understanding a little bit more behind the scenes, like you quickly realize like, Holy shit. Um, maybe, maybe we don't know what we're doing and, and it's just not good use of our resources or time. And so basically the, the mission of that book was just to convey my experiences because it, it changed my mind so much about how I was thinking. And so the hope was that maybe if someone read that, the next time we decide to, to do something like this, they, they would at least, you know, consider that, uh, you know, maybe uh, there's, there's uh, trade-offs to be, to be considered um, that, I, that I, you know, naively wasn't thinking about beforehand. So I, I think we probably all fall into that. We all went in with a lot of hopes and dreams and, and aspirations. Yeah. And then, then, yeah, especially when you met people, I think yeah. that was one of the big things for me. When I met the people there, it really changed my perspective on, uh, on what exactly, you know, really was happening in the country. So awesome. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll definitely, is that available on Amazon? Uh, I, yeah, I think it is. Um, right. well, we'll I mean, find it. Any... We'll make sure I'll link to it in the show notes. So definitely yeah, check you can the link to it, to but it. I mean, if you got any people that are vets, I, I'll just send it to them for free. So, um, easy day. Um, if they want to reach out, email you, I'll just shoot them a copy. Not a problem. Okay. All right. Perfect. Well, even better. Well, yeah. I will definitely reach out. I'm definitely get my signed copy of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good deal. So after the Marines, you came back to the world of finance. Yeah. You got, yeah. So I came back um, and then, then I had to finish my dissertation at uh, university there. So I, you know, I don't know if you guys know how PhD programs work, but essentially the, the first two years, it's just hardcore baseline, you know, doing math, like getting hazed basically uh, <laughs> on all the fundamentals. And then, then you, you pass what you call your composite exams. And then once you pass those, which I passed before I left for the service, you're now what they call ABD, which is all but dissertation, 
which means you're no longer required to do schoolwork. You just got to do research. And so when I came back, I didn't have to go to classes anymore. It's just, you got to go invent a new idea or come up with new original research that is good enough to pass muster to basically graduate. And so that's what I did when I came back, essentially. Um, what was your dissertation on? So my dissertation, there was two parts. Um, the first part was like the theory of why do people in the marketplace share good ideas with one another, right? So, and this is something that's kind of common knowledge now, but it wasn't as common, I'd say back then, where, where now it makes sense. Like if you have a good trading idea, even if it's not about just talking your book purposes, like it's beneficial for you to sometimes share your knowledge, share what you're doing, because, you know, you may get better insights from people. They may, if you share your good ideas, maybe they'll share their good ideas with you. So there's all these kind of non, you know, purely efficient market reasons why people share good ideas and information. So, and, and it was, so one part was a theory paper of why that, you know, people aren't just like, where they just only hold their ideas to themselves and won't tell anyone because the market's so efficient and they don't want to, you know, share it with the bad guys. It doesn't work like that. And then the second part was empirically testing that. So there's an organization, uh, well, there's a few organizations I use, but the primary one is Value Investors Club, which is started by this gentleman named uh, Joel Greenblatt, where they, it's all these hedge fund managers essentially that share really interesting stock picking ideas and so this was an actual live message board that's invite only where they actually were engaging in this activity. So it gave me an opportunity to kind of test, you know, my different theories about why do people share ideas and under what circumstances, et cetera. So, so Wes, can I, can I interrupt just quick for a quick sure. question? So like, yeah. so, I mean, I know you wrote a thesis about this. So for just, yeah. uh, you know, I see people go on CNBC all the time or they go on different programs that they're, you know, they're trying yeah. to pump something, right? You know, Bill yeah. Ackman, you know, he'll be like, you know, when the market was sure. crashing, he's like, oh, everything's going to hell. You know, you guys got to sell. It's like, well, actually, I have a short position, guys. So, you know, what yeah, you, yeah, yeah, my, yeah. my analysis really is helpful here, right? So I think yep. it, isn't a lot of the analysis that people are doing, it's self-serving, you know, they have a position, you know, and they're trying, yeah. you know, if I'm buying Disney, I want more people to buy Disney. I think it's yeah, great. So, I think everybody uh, thinks it should, it's great, it's right? It's a great, that's a great question. And so, so what it is, is that's the initial one most people think about. That That's called the talking your book hypothesis. And that one makes sense, right? Like, if you have a position and and you and you, you've already bought your position now you obviously have all the incentives in the world to go tell the world why this is such a great idea because they'll presumably bring it to the fundamental price or what have you right so so that's definitely one reason uh that people will share ideas uh and that's the most obvious one but there are other reasons why people do it and I mean, it basically boils down to one is like the collaboration benefit. So for, for example, like I may be really smart or think I am, but I may think you, Brian, are also really smart. And, and I know that if, if I share my idea with you, the downside of that is now you have my idea, right? But the upside of that is you may be able to add a critical information piece to me where, where that information you've provided is so valuable that the cost of me sharing the idea and getting a little bit of leakage is maybe worth the benefit of hearing your feedback and vice versa. Like when you share an idea with me, I might provide uh, valuable feedback. It's called like the collaboration argument, right? And then, and then the final one that is pretty geeky, but the concept is that, okay, if we're in a close-knit group and let's say we're a bunch of hedge fund managers, right? The reality is really good ideas are hard to come by. So if I can only come up with five ideas, well, I could put 20% of my money in my five ideas, but I am super exposed to a concentrated book of my ideas. And that kind of sucks, right? Because I have a lot of risk in that. So instead, I might say, you know what? We're going to form a syndicate. Mike, you're going to send me five ideas. Brian, you're going to send five ideas. I'm going to produce five ideas. Now we have 15 ideas. And as long as we all kind of collaborate with, we think equal quality now, instead of just investing in my five best ideas and, and kind of hoping for the best, there's a lot of risks there. Now I can eke away across 15 ideas, right? So, so there's other, there's potential benefits to getting in like transparently sharing with people where, where everyone is net better off. And so whatever. And then you, and you just use a bunch of math and bullshit to prove it. <laughs> no, it sounds um, great. It sounds but, but Yeah, that's the basic. Uh, that's how you get a PhD. Like, 
uh, come up with something that is common sense, but then you got to use a lot of math to make it fancy. But those, that's kind of the essence of uh, different reasons beyond talking your book, which is also a very good reason uh, of why people would share good ideas. Well, it's good to know there's some other alternative reasons why people want to share information, yeah, yeah, not just to personally not just, benefit themselves. Uh, yeah, it's not just nefarious. <laughs> there's definitely legitimate reasons why people would genuinely want to share their uh, intellectual property. I'm always, I'm always thinking on Twitter, every time that somebody's out there pumping a stock that is in really rough shape, I'm like, they're obviously a bag holder. And they're just praying yeah. uh, the, the greater fool theory. Yeah, um, they're, yeah. they're just praying that somebody else will be a greater fool and come along and buy this and buy them out of their stock, essentially. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, there's definitely that. Um, I mean, another thing that I wish I knew at the time, but I just didn't have enough experience, but through our, our own business build out is I do think there's a lot, the world has changed where like a personal brand um, can actually be valuable, right? So, so let's say you're someone who's really, really interesting or has cool stuff to talk about, right? Even though technically you could take your, you know, your 10 grand that your grandma gave you um, and go invest in your best ideas, it might be more beneficial for you to signal to the marketplace that you're legit, right? So if you share a lot of actually really good ideas, even though you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot because you're 10K, you're kind of sharing the good ideas, so you may not get all the return benefit. If you could highlight and presumably maybe find a billionaire or a few millionaires that also find you really intelligent, they might say, you know what, we'll give you $100 million and pay you 1% to manage it. And then you as that brand builder might make a hell of a lot more money charging 1% on 100 mil than trying to make you know 50% returns on your 10K your grandma gave you. So I think there's a lot of business reasons. There's a lot of reasons why, especially younger types or, or people trying to build their own brand may actually share really, really good ideas genuinely because they have ulterior motives for, you know, for other ways to maybe monetize it. So Twitter's not all bad. I'm, I'm just trying to say that it's, uh, there's sometimes there is genuine reasons why people will share information that's not just talk in your book. Um, and I do see that all the time. I understand. I understand. I, I share all of my trades and I'm, I'm on Twitter. I, I share every single trade I make. I say, okay, I bought here, you know, maybe usually 30 seconds after I bought it, once yeah. I set my stop and everything. And then I go back and I, and I say where I got out. If it was a loss, it was a loss. Yeah. If it was a profit, it was a profit. So no, I'm hundred percent with you there. I, I know that. Yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely, there's goods and there bads. So I'm always just trying to be on the skeptical side, but yeah, but give yeah, people no, a chance should be, to, to sure. show themselves as good. Yeah. hundred percent. We'll be skeptical, but, uh, and one of the things I noticed about like a culture change is kind of millennial or younger people, they just value authenticity and transparency. So by you doing that, you're, you're building like a brand where people realize like, hey, Michael, he's not just a bullshitter. Like, like he tells me when he buys, when he sells, he documents it. And that's going to be maybe a lot more trustworthy than watching the commercial with like the 60-year-old guy that talks about buy gold and guns, like we're all going <laughs> to die, like you know, that guy's not going to sell anything to anyone that's under 50. Whereas you, you may be building like a credible, transparent brand where if you were to promote something, you know, people should listen to you because you've been honest and authentic about how you've, uh, you know, conveyed yourself in the, in the marketplace. So there's a benefit to transparency, basically. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And authenticity, authentic, being authentic makes a lot, makes a big difference. Definitely. So. Yeah. So, all right. So you finished your time in the Marines. You finished yep. your PhD. Yeah. What, you ended up starting Alpha Architects. Is there any in-between time or did you go right yeah, into uh, like Well, that's also a crazy a story. Um, yeah. So, so basically what happened is I, I, I got out, um, went back into the PhD land, had to, you know, relearn calculus and how to read my own papers they don't teach you that in the Marine Corps, obviously. Um, but it is like riding a bike. Like you do, you do. I forgot all that now, but like presumably if, if someone said, Hey, go prove black shoals, you know, I could probably go figure it out with a little bit of time. Um, and so, so it didn't, didn't allow that and then got going. And one of the things I uh, imposed on myself was this was way back. How long, when was that? 2008. I started a blog spot, which was like the old Google, like, you know, now they don't even know if that exists anymore, but I used to, I used to write a blog where I would just read papers, academic papers, and then talk about them on the blog. 
and there's be like five readers uh, or whatever it was, maybe I've 10. Been there. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've been there. Um, you know, so I started this blog like in 2008 or whatever the heck it was. And, 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 you know, I was just doing that just kind of as like a side project and then did my research graduated. Um, and then I, I went to go be a professor and then, but simultaneous to that, you know, this blog had went from the 10 readers to like whatever, a thousand readers now. And it just so happened that some of those readers were, you know, multimillionaires. Um, and in one case, an, a legitimate billionaire. And so right when I went on the academic job market, I got cold call by this billionaire dude out of New York who, who said, listen, I've been reading your blog. I've read your dissertation. Can we talk? Um, and, yeah, that's and that's kind of how we start Alpha Architect like as I was being a professor and then behind the scenes, I, I, I'd always been kind of moonlighting. And then to the extent that, that, uh, you know, the, the business kind of grew to a stage where, okay, now, now I can not worry about this professor job anymore, even though it's pretty cheesy. Um, let, let's just focus on the business. So, so I, I was kind of starting off architect as being a professor and just kind of got lucky in the whole thing. So what were you doing with that initial customer? So what we were doing is it started off just doing due diligence. So our, our, they, what happened to them is this is right after 2008. Um, and by the way, before that, I'd started a hedge fund in September 2008, which is another story um, of me trying to be. And that was also why I was doing my dissertation because I was, I was trying again to get an asset manager business. But um but so that kind of went through and it's a bad backstory of how bad that ended. But um, I kind of rebounded and said, okay, let's, let's take the PhD. And this at the time also married, um, you know, so I got to actually get serious about life at this point. Uh, <laughs> no more, no more taking flyers. Um, and so, right. So I started off, it was this after 08, this was a huge family office where their business was seeding hedge funds for 30 years. And they went through the 2008 experience and said, holy shit, like the idea of like the two and 20, like alpha king of the world is gone. Markets got way more efficient, way more transparent. We need to control our money, lower our fees, lower our taxes. We're going quant, i.e. they were 10 years ahead of everyone else in the world. And so the problem is they didn't know shit about quant and they didn't trust anyone on Wall Street because you know, they were part of the ecosystem and they, you know, it's just not going to work. And, and I guess my background is like some wacko Marine dude, um, you know, who's writing this blog on like academic research was attractive because I, I was not really, uh, I wasn't an effective combatant, right? Like I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I think maybe they just reached out because I was seemed like not intimidating. And so the initial job was essentially consulting for them on how do we transition from where we are to where we want to go, i.e., can you just teach us to do this stuff? Um, and then the quid pro quo was, well, sure, I'll do that. Um, but you're also a billionaire, and I don't know any rich people, and I'd like to get an asset management someday. And it's, you know, I don't have a rich uncle that can give me $50 million, but that's nothing for you guys. And so the deal was, hey, if you do two years um, of good, you know, consult, we like each other we'll seed your business. And, and that's basically what happened. So 2010, you know, we're doing consulting here and, and then 2012, we got seeded and then, you know, the rest is kind of history, but that's the, that's how it all went down. Basically. Just out of curiosity, who came up with the name? I think it's a pretty clever name, but, uh, of the business. Well, that's also a, uh, a bad story. Uh, oh, bad. Sorry. I don't want to bring up all bad stories. No, here. no. It's, I just learned a lot of like, I wish I could always just tell people to just don't do what I did. Um, so we start off with empirical finance LLC, right? Cause I was like, Oh, like we're evidence-based and we're empirical, like empirical asset price. And it's like an academic term. It's probably also a stupid marketing idea, but whatever. We thought it was cool. Um, so at the time I was like, Oh, we'll, we'll be empirical finance LLC. And then of course, uh, we finally got to a hundred million, which means you have to register with the sec. Right. And now every idiot on the planet knows who you are. And so we immediately got a cease and desist letter from someone who said, excuse us, um, we have a trademark on the use of empirical and financial services, 
and either pay us a shitload of money uh, or we're going to sue you. And, and I was like, what? Um, and I never even heard of these people and they weren't even really using it. But another client that also came through like the blog, which wasn't the billionaire, but close enough. Um, he happened to have a brother who worked at the trademark office. And so I got a little free kind of law advice. And he's like, listen, Wes, he's like, you guys should actually fight them. And cause you probably have grounds cause you have been using that, that for a long time, it's going to cost you 50 grand. And alternative is just come up with a new name. And, and I was like, all right, 50 K or just come up with a new name. <laughs> Let's come up with a new name. But I didn't come up with Alpha Architect. We came up with Imperatrage, which was, is the dumbest idea ever, but the concept was empirical based arbitrage. And so we thought we were going to be cool and we're going to call it Imperatrage. And so that's what we did. And of course that was stupid in retrospect, even though we thought it was genius because everyone's like, what, what's your name? How do you spell that? And, and you know, again, we're just like quants. We're not like marketing people. And so then we quickly realized, well, that's dumb. Uh, we need to come up with a new name that is easy to understand, conveys what we do, and we can trademark. And then so then we went through this massive, you know, time and effort of like figuring shit out. And I don't even remember how the heck I came up with that. But it turned out that architect in the context of financial services hadn't been trademarked. And, and we thought, OK, well, that's kind of a cool word. And alpha architect, like we're going to try to build, you know, alpha. It kind of fits and we can trademark it done. And, and so that that was like the, the five year journey of getting sued and dealing with lawyers and being an idiot um, to finally come to alpha architect. LLC. <laughs> and, and here we are, you know, and this one's sticking and no one can sue us because we were smarter about um, the IP stuff. But, you know, so if any entrepreneurs out there, make sure you go to Trademarkia and before you start up your great business idea, just double check. No one else already has it, because if you get enough money, some lawyer will sue you to like, you know, try to take your money from you. That's great advice. Thank you for that. I had no idea. What a great question, Brian. I so, know. Thank you. So Wes, a background. I, I am. I do, I do work with patents and trademark. I actually am an IP lawyer at the university at NC State. Yeah, well, so, there you go, so I appreciate this story. And we work with small businesses all the time. And we're always like, oh, yes, please do a trademark you. search. Uh, yeah, look, look at the name. We work with tons of entrepreneurs. And just because I got so burnt on that, we're always like, hey, did you get a trademark on this? Did you confirm that like Fidelity doesn't already own this? Because they will sue your ass to like ground zero. Um <laughs> And, you know, I'm not an IP lawyer like you are. So I had just no clue about even how that worked. And, you know, so it's definitely a, a lesson learned. I wish I'd learned earlier. Um, <laughs> so, sure. so what does Alpha Architects do today? So our, our primary business, there's, there's kind of three lines, right? There's uh, the legacy SMA business, which is separately managed accounts. Where that, that's where we started. That was like, you know, big, chunky accounts where you go buy individual securities for some rich person, essentially, right? And then we moved from that into the ETF business, exchange traded fund business, where now, now you just do the same thing, but you manage it as a pool. And the ETF is unique because it's got some cool tax features to it. Um, so that's kind of our second business, the ETF business. And then the third business that we also are engaged in is we, we're kind of a limited idea shop in the sense that we only make products that we want to put our own money into. So we only have five. We don't have 500 because we just don't have that many good ideas, but we have excess capacity and we like helping people not do stupid things like we did. So we also help other people launch ETFs and basically serve as like their back office infrastructure where if they want to go be the brand, they're the ideas person, they're the salesperson, but they don't want to deal with all the ops component. Um, we'll, we'll do that. It's called ETF white label services. It's kind of like a behind the scenes uh, business, essentially. So. Okay. I, I find that fascinating. I didn't really understand that. So, I mean, you know, I think most people's exposures to an ETF is something through like Vanguard. Yeah. Right? Yep. Sure. And so yeah. but you have five of your own ETFs and then you yeah. help people build, build ETFs as well. Is that right? That's right. So, so let, let's say, um, let's say someone like yourself had like, like, obviously we're, we're, 
the world of, of ETFs and asset management is there you got the massive scale, you know, commodity deliverers like Vanguard, iShares, whatever, and where no one's going to take them down, right? How the heck would any entrepreneur create like a multiple trillion dollar company? And why would you? What's the point of competing for like two basis points to do the same thing that everyone else does, right? That business is done. Um, but then you have the boutiques. And the boutiques are interesting because they're often doing things that are not as scalable. It's just, it's not, it's a waste of time for Vanguard to wake up for like a hundred, 200, $300 million because they're managing trillions. So there, there's this other whole world of the boutiques where these are people doing unique, differentiated things where they're going to still deliver them affordably to the marketplace because you can't charge too much. Um, but, you know, people are obviously going to be willing to pay for differentiation and uniqueness because they can't buy that from Vanguard. And so what happens is, is a lot of people like, let's say someone like yourself, you create a following, you got a unique idea. It's, it's something that Vanguard just can't do because it's just not worth their time. But maybe you could do it and, and you could convince people that this is a reasonable idea. Um, that's what we help. Like we kind of help the boutique entrepreneur who wants to launch their own ETF because they have a platform, they have some cool idea, um, but they don't want to burn millions of dollars on setting up their, all their own ETF structure. And so what they can do is they can lean on our kind of sunk cost of doing this and, 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 and kind of take advantage of, of that price benefit essentially. So that's kind of what ETF white label is really serving from an economic perspective. So, all right. So an ETF, exchange traded fund, yeah, I think yeah. most people are familiar with something like the SPY. It tracks yeah. the S&P 500. Yep. You know, there's other ones out there. One might track the healthcare industry. Yep. One might track uh, electric cars or electric vehicle industry. Something yeah. Like Thematic ETFs, they call those. Yeah. So mm -hmm. what, what would one do if I wanted to? Now, Brian, I can see Brian smiling here. Brian's got some ideas for some ETFs. Yeah. We're kind of always like, all right, let's. What, what would it take for us to actually set up our own ETF if we, yeah. if we had so, the following and the idea? And yeah. I guess like what type of uh, man, I guess uh, what type of money would that take as well? Investment yeah. side and startup side. So, so when I always tell people I, I'm basically an anti-salesman because I say, hey, you want to join the ETF business? Great. You want to be in a, in a super competitive, low fee, massive fixed cost business. Like what entrepreneur would want to do that, right? Like that's insane. Um, so, so that, and, and, and that's just reality, right? It's just, it's insanely competitive. It's, you can't charge a lot of fees. You gotta be transparent. You gotta compete, right? It's like, this is the Marine Corps, not the Air Force. Like, it's just, you know, nothing against Air Force people. You know, you know what I mean? Like we got, you gotta get ready to grind people. Um, and so the economics on an ETF, and this is on a low cost like platform like us where we're basically going to do everything for you. So I think it was like a total outsource solution where all you're doing is literally sending us a spreadsheet and telling us what to do. Um, and then obviously convincing your audience or your collective like, hey, this is a reasonable thing to buy. So you're looking at, you know, plain vanilla and there's a ton of variants on this, but basically it's a 50K startup. And what okay. that involves, that cost is how much it costs to file with the SEC what they call a registration statement, which is primarily consists of your prospectus, right? And that's just, it costs that much because you got to pay lawyers. It takes a lot of time. It's like, you know, it just is what it is. Then that's nothing. That's just a startup. <laughs> like to start a hedge fund, it costs like 10 grand. I, I could, yeah, I could start a hedge fund for 10 grand. A lot of people say it's more than that, but we've done it. We do it. Um, it's going to be five X at least to start an ETF, but that's not the bad part. The bad part is the ongoing cost. You're looking at, you know, soup to nuts all in. It can be a little bit lower than this, but let's just say for easy math around 250 grand. So you will be lighting a quarter million dollars on fire every year before you see a penny uh, to the bottom line. So then you got to ask like, well, okay, what maniac would ever in their right mind launch an ETF, right? Why would I do a business that costs 50 grand to start up, 250 grand to like every year in burnt costs? Well, the reason people do that is the marginal cost of managing 
you know, $1 million or $1 billion is close to zero. So what the ETF business delivers is massive operating leverage, where to the extent you can somehow get to that 50 mil, 100 mil mark, like all of a sudden your profit margin goes from like zero to 99%, right? Because it doesn't cost you that much more to manage the next marginal dollar because all your, you've built up so much operating leverage. And you have this amazing thing where you have a ticker that anyone in the world can click a button and be a proud owner of, right? So, so that's why it's attractive. It's like this massive barrier to entry, huge fixed cost, but to the extent you can scale it, you, you've basically created a money minting machine. But there, there's, a lot, there's a lot to get to the money minting stage, but th that's why people are still willing to join the, the business and, and give it a whirl, you know, because it, it can work out really well for you if you can get to scale. So let's can I just ask a mechanics question here. Like, and sure. this is maybe a very uh, novice yeah. question. So sure. like, like, you know, spy tracks the S and P 500 and there's yeah. people going in and out, in and out. And so if you have a smaller yeah. ETF, that's tracking maybe less assets, yeah. how is it so that the ETF actually accurately tracks the underlying assets? Not just like this money going, it's not just an asset of, of itself tracking what people are buying and selling it. I don't yeah, know if yeah. that makes so, sense. Um, so what it is, it is so ETFs are, are super interesting and, and how they got started is beyond me. Like whoever got this game started, like God bless them, like for just being so creative. So what happens is when, when you buy or sell an ETF, you're not actually dealing with us, the ETF manufacturer. You're dealing with the market makers, right? And so what happened is there's a market maker there. And he, he or she is allowed to interact with us. They're called APs or authorized participants, okay? And, and they're the only ones that can actually trade with me, right? And what, I, what my deal with them is, is I say market maker, or they call them APs or authorized participants. We'll just call them market maker. They, their arrangement with us is we have a deal where I say, hey, if you deliver me this exact list of securities, I will issue you shares, if you deliver me shares, I will issue you these exact lists of securities. So what happens just at the market maker level is, and, and usually these comes in, in big bulk trades, right? So, so let's say it's 10,000 shares is, is how they have to interact with us. So they're going to create 10,000 shares worth of our ETF, which may be like, I don't know, 1,000 shares of Apple, 500 shares of Google or whatever. When they do that, if they deliver those securities into us, we essentially have like a, an IPO every day, right? If they deliver us those shares, we issue new shares out to them and they're happy because they deliver, they got rid of their shares, they get, or they got rid of their underlying stocks to get ETF shares. Similarly, if they deliver us the underlying stocks, or sorry, if they deliver us the underlying ETF certificates, we have to deliver out the, the individual stocks to them, right? And so that's just the that's just like the infrastructure. So why the heck would they want to do this? Well, what they do is they actually interface with the retail public, right? Like like we never talk to you or whoever's buying or selling ETF, and no ETF sponsor does. You're always dealing with either another ETF participant because they happen to own, you know, Ark or, or whatever. What, what's your guys' favorite ETF? Like, what's the ETF you trade? Uh, I don't know. You Dow. That's our famous one that we Yeah, yeah. You, or let's say whatever. Like, yeah, let's say SPY. Just keep it easy. SPY, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so SPY, most of the time, when you go buy or sell SPY in the marketplace, you're a lot of times you're actually crossing your order with another SPY holder, right? It's, it's called secondary liquidity. So you're not even dealing with an ETF, right? When you're buying and selling SPY, you're often just trading with other SPY holders. But let's say that SPY had no volume and you want to go buy 10,000 shares of SPY. Well, how would that work? There is no buyer. There, sorry, there is no seller of 10,000 shares of SPY. So what's going to happen is the market maker is going to say, huh, Brian needs to buy 10,000 shares. What I'm going to do is I'm going to short sell 10,000. I'm going to, I'm going to basically borrow. I'm going to like, I'm going to sell you 10,000 shares, but I don't actually own the 10,000 shares, right? Because they, they have an ability to just create these things out of thin air, basically. So they'll sell you the 10,000 shares and then simultaneously, immediately start buying 
10,000 shares worth of the underlying S&P 500 stocks. The reason for that is when they sell you the 10,000 shares, they're on the hook to actually, you know, they have, they're at risk. They're basically short 10,000 shares of SPY because they just on their books created them and gave them to you. They don't want to be like exposed or short the SPY. So the, the minute they sell you that thing, the 10,000 shares of SPY, they immediately create 10,000 shares of SPY of the underlying basket. And what they'll do is they deliver that to us that night um, and say, hey, Alpha Architect, let's say we ran SPY, we're giving you the 10,000 shares worth of the underlying securities that make up SPY. And then we are then legally obligated to then deliver them 10,000 shares of SPY ETF certificates. Why is that important? Well, remember, they were short 10,000 shares of SPY because they sold them to you. And now they just delivered in the underlying securities and received SPY shares, which then they used to cover their short, right? So they're flat and you own 10,000 shares, they're flat, but now the fund SPY has those securities that they bought on basically your behalf. And, and the reason they do this is because they arbitrage it, right? So they may sell you the 10,000 shares of SPY for whatever, hundred bucks, but the underlying basket of SPY stocks cost 99.95 or something, right? So they like this because they make the little five, five cent spread and you like it because you now have your ETF shares, you can go buy and sell and go crazy on. And so, so that's how the ETF works. It, it's basically the ETF itself is always expanding in assets or decreasing an asset, just depending on the demand in the marketplace. Yeah, I, I guess that you kind of answered the question. I, I guess this is from my perspective, you know, say there's a lot of demand to short the market, right? So yeah. everyone pours into you Dow, like, should that cause it to go up? Well, not necessarily, right? Because the rest of the market, other people in the market could be buying up you know, yeah, just because yeah, the demand it, for the ETF is high doesn't necessarily mean the, the value of the ETF is high. Exactly. Yeah. Because because if someone hates the SPY ETF, but people still like the market, they could go buy the underlying securities. Like, like there's so many market participants. It's the ETF demand is, is somewhat irrelevant because the market's a lot bigger than people think, um, especially in that kind of thing. So, um yeah, that's a great explanation. I appreciate it. I can, I can see you definitely earned that PhD there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the ETFs are just, honestly, the problem with them is the infrastructure is pretty complicated. But the main thing you got to know is that it's, it's basically a continuous IPO, right? And, and all the trading is done by market makers on your behalf, where you could go talk to us and say, you know, hey, Brian, you want to get 10 shares of SPY from us? great, go buy 500 securities and deliver them to us and we'll issue you 10 shares. That'd be a pain in your ass. It's a lot better to have like a professional market maker participant who this is all they do all day, be that intermediary to make sure you get good liquidity. They, you know, acquire the shares efficiently, deliver them to us. It just makes everyone's life better. And that's why ETFs are so awesome and so efficient is because, you know, you get a lever on the ecosystem of Wall Street, basically. Um, it's a really cool thing. I think that's incredible. I'm just flush with knowledge right now of how exactly that works. And I think yeah. I think a lot of times market makers get a bad name on Wall Street. You know, people are like, oh, the market maker was after my stop or, you know, they're trying yeah. to screw me out of this and that and the other. But market makers actually do a very legitimate job and provide liquidity. Yeah. And they're actually balancing out. I didn't realize that, but they're actually balancing out ETFs throughout the yeah. day. Hundred percent. I mean, being a market maker is, uh, I mean, you're basically providing liquidity to the marketplace when it may not exist there naturally. And so that, that's a huge benefit. Like if you just want to get rid of your Microsoft stock, or let's say you own some Apple shares, but if there's no market makers and there's no natural buyers on the other side, you're screwed, right? So it's an amazing thing and people should, you know, count their blessings for market makers because when they go in the marketplace and trade and buy and sell and they're getting like a penny spread, that's not that's because you you've incentivized someone to make money at the margin to provide liquidity and that's a real service that you all of us should be willing to pay for and I gladly pay for it because because they're they're providing an economic value to the market. It's not a it's not something to begrudge, I think. I think it's a beautiful thing in the marketplace. Competition works. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I love it. I'm, I'm, I, I really, I'm glad we, we had you on. Thank you so much for coming on. Just the, the talks about ETFs and really how they, how they actually function at their very base yeah. level. I think a lot of people um, don't understand it. I know I didn't before we talked to you about this. So I really do appreciate it. Well, I'm still learning, man. It's been, uh, <laughs> I'm 10 years in on it, still figuring it out. So, I mean, it, it's, it's like anything. I remember when I was a professor, uh, I noticed and even when it, growing up learning things, you hear something once, you, you kind of understand it, but not really. A lot of times you just need to sit on it and percolate and maybe a year from now it becomes common knowledge and you're like, why doesn't everyone know how an ETF works? Yeah. Um, but it's just one of those things where highly recommend all, especially if you're a trader, it's really important to understand the ETF marketplace and that ecosystem because it ha can have a lot of influence on what you're doing and you may not know about it. So it's very important to be aware of, of what's going on in the securities that maybe ETFs are, are affecting. Because otherwise you may be seeing action where you don't know why it's happening, but that's because you're not paying attention to the ETF marketplace. And that would be an important thing to understand in, in your trading activity. So it's certainly something to consider and be aware of. Definitely. Well, well, Wes, I, I don't know if I, I think I've been hit with so much knowledge today. I don't even think I have any more questions really at this point. Yeah. Um, is there somewhere if people wanted to reach out to you and contact you directly, is there somewhere that we can, uh, that you can tell them that we can reach out to you? Yeah. I mean, the best way to reach out to us is just alpharchitect.com. And, and our firm mission is to empower investors through education. So we have, unfortunately for your listeners, like over a thousand blog posts at this point. So it's almost TMI. Um, but if you go on our website, there's, there's a, a link that says like, start here and it'll, it'll try to introduce you to the content. But what I would just say for your, your listeners is just consider this a lifelong journey for learning um, because it'll take you a few years just to read the first thousand blog posts. Uh, <laughs> by the time you're done with that, we probably got a thousand more. So it's just, don't be intimidated, start slow, you know, listen to podcasts like that you guys are producing and just be a sponge. And over time, a lot of this knowledge, I think you'll, you'll start to internalize. It. It'll make you a better trader and uh, make you a better investor as well. All right. Well, thank you. We'll definitely, we'll link to all that. We'll link to your website in the show notes and they can reach out to, uh, to Wes or anybody else. Uh, you got, I know you have several different contributors to your blog and your blog is yeah, a wealth of knowledge. I mean, yeah, go, go slow with the blog. I've read some of it and yeah, it's not, it's not a quick read, go slow, take your time, but there's, there's so many incredible concepts on the blog there. So thank you so much. So don't go anywhere just yet. We have a, we have a last segment. We always, we like to have a little bit of fun here and yeah. we have the question of the day. So Brian brings a question. I haven't heard it. You haven't heard it. And we're just going to have to answer it. Sometimes it has to do with trading. Sometimes it doesn't. We're all in the dark here. So let's, what, what do you got for us today? Well, I, I have two questions. So one is like kind of more market related and one is un, not related to the market. So which one, which one would you prefer we go first with? If we have let's time. go market and non-market. Okay. So I'm going to go, okay, for market. So this is something that me and Michael have discussed. We were very interested in ETFs and this is maybe putting on your professor hat here. So this is yeah. our idea. There, we have two ideas for two competing ETFs and I'd like okay. to call them the good fund and the evil fund. And so okay. the good fund would be like, you know, the best companies, they treat their workers the best, they pay them the best wages, they never pollute, they don't sell anything that gives you cancer, you know, no bad yeah. lawsuits, the good company, very highly ethical. And we just only put the best companies in the ETF. And yeah. then the evil ETF is like, you know, sin, they do cancer, gambling, you know, sure. they give people obesity, you know, they pay their workers terribly. They have environmental spills, you know, lawsuits. Yeah, yeah. The sin the, stocks, they call them. Yeah, the sin stocks. So the good ETF, the good place ETF, the bad place ETF, which one, you know, performs better over like, you know, a 10 year period. If you had to guess, if you're to look back in time or look forward into the future, you know, if you were doing a thesis on this, what, what would you be predicting here? Uh, well, I would definitely predict the sin stock if you're just going for absolute like money return, um, for sure, just because they're lower valuations and they have more hate and discontent, which translate the higher expected returns, you know, mathematically. So that's easy. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's Michael, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> I, I mean, I was I was saying I was thinking historically, I think it would be the sin stocks, but I, I want to be more optimistic and say in the future, the good place stocks would outperform, but yeah, you know, Wes, 
Wes said it there better than anybody. He knows the ins and outs of this. So yeah, I, I think I, you're right. I, I, would, I would want to be more optimistic about the future. But what, uh, what I would but, say is yeah. uh, it's not that uh, I just have more scars on my back. And a principle of financial markets is no pain, no gain. So anytime you see a circumstance where everyone finds that comfortable, easy, like, oh, that makes sense. More often than not over long horizons, that's actually the wrong bet if you're trying to earn excess returns, like right now, Oh, go buy like things that are work from home. Like that's first level thinking, but usually what happens in market is the money's made by the second, third level thinkers who don't get caught in the sentiment can think through a cycle. And so that, that's why I, I would just say like empirically and from an economic, you know, rationality thing that, you know, the dirt ball things everyone hates that people think are, you know, totally you know just insane and why and i don't even want to talk to people at the cocktail party about what i own of course they're going to earn higher returns because everyone would want to highlight how awesome and badass their good portfolio is but do you think that would mean you're going to get to earn higher returns no because you know markets go to equilibriums where you know pain is matched with gain appropriately on average um so that would make no sense to be able to get a free lunch of feel good and make more money yeah uh, i guess i mean i think a lot of companies hit go into a gray zone you know maybe they do certain good things but they also do certain bad things so maybe it's it's, sure. it's also a loaded question and has some subjectivity in there but i well and i would say answer. it depends on the sentiment right like like if you were to tell me right now that you know there's no benefit there's no woke people like ever, like no one wants to even admit that they have like esg or socially responsible firms it's actually taboo then i might make the other argument but the fact of the matter is, is like right now, nobody would want to admit that they own Philip Morris all in because that would just you have a lot of societal pain and anguish and you just you'd feel stupid and society, you know, wouldn't it be a cool thing to do. And so cool things get earned less returns, you know, things that suck and people hate earn high returns it is just that's a, that's a truism of the market uh, that people forget. And so it's just a good thing to always think about uh, for long-term thinking. Well, I appreciate the perspective and insight there. So I, yeah, I gave fair enough. Second, second question of the day. So we're recording this like kind of after Veterans Day, and I know you appreciate your service that you both did, and it was some really interesting chat we had there. I recently finished a book about um, this book called The Generals, and it's uh, written by a military historian where he goes kind of from uh, you know World War One to the modern day and kind of critiques the military leadership in the United States, mostly focusing on the army. So maybe mm -hmm. in the spirit of Veterans Day, um, maybe the top three uh, best U.S. military leaders, in your opinion, I'll give you top three in, throughout history. You can go wherever you like, modern times, ancient times. I don't know. Michael, you want to go first? Now that you put me on the spot, I'm, I'm making a list here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give General Mattis, uh, our recent Secretary of Defense. I actually served underneath him. I met him just briefly once. Love General Mattis. I think he's a fantastic leader. Definitely a top general. Um, another one we actually mentioned, we talked about this earlier, but General Petraeus. He's a general of the Army. I know he's got some baggage at this point, uh, especially with his, because uh, I think he had an affair with his publicist or biographer or somebody, <laughs> and that really did scar his reputation. And he has to own that and has to, you know, certainly, uh, you know, that, that's going to be a stain on his legacy. But I do think he was a very, very good general. Um, there's two. I have to, I have to pick I mean, those, those well, that be, that that general. <laughs> directly served with. So I'm going to default to Wes. Wes, you go, and I'll have a third by the time. Yeah, yeah. Up. I mean, I think the ones you mentioned are pretty good. Um, it's really, really hard to gauge that question without personal interaction, because who knows? But I, in my personal experience, like uh, this, this Marine, uh, Gunny Bunnell, who, uh, who worked alongside me, um, I thought he was pretty great because he just took care of his Marines and was very selfless and I saw he was a great example even though he's not very famous obviously because no one's ever heard of him except for me because uh, <laughs> I used to work with them but but I, I really always appreciated what, what he did um, another one that's probably more public figure it, you know I, I like Jocko Willink um, I don't know if you yeah. guys are familiar with him but it's just I just like leaders that are you know they always you know trying to help out their people and take care of them and you're not, not too worried about themselves before, you know, their, their people and just 
that kind of I always thought that stuff was kind of cool. You usually generals, I mean they're great, but they're politicians in the end. Like anyone who's in the service for that long, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of uh or more often than not, I'm skeptical. But I do agree with you that Petraeus and uh Mattis would definitely buck that trend. But I'm I'm more into like small unit leaders that I personally know that are that aren't very famous. All right, so I have it's not a general. I'm gonna default Brian because I just like I mean, what about I, I could say Eisenhower or Patton? I could, I could throw a big name out there, but I never served with them. I really don't know. You know, I don't know what the history books tell me. So I'm gonna give you another name. It's an interesting name. Something that actually the Marines uh, are are much more up on than the other branches of service. But this name is Simone Sinek, and he wrote the book is Leaders Eat Last: Why Some Team Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't, and Leaders Eat Last, that's actually directly in the Marine Corps. If you've ever been in a, a field operation, and I, I already I see Wes uh, nodding. Yeah, here. yeah, we, we got he that. The, the lowest yeah. ranking people. And it's like, it is like a religious thing. Like they, they'll line you up by the date you pulled that rank. Like if you were a corporal in February, well, you eat before me who became a, you're a, I'm sorry, if you were a corporal in March, you eat before me who became a corporal in February because you've been a corporal for less time than me. So I think leaders eat last. I think some of those, so like I said, I'm just going to leave you at that name. Uh, and that's Simon Sinek. Yeah. And we'll link to it in the show notes too, but leaders eat last because they say that, you know what, if your if your unit is not effective, if your unit is not well taken care of, then the, then the whole operation, you know, you don't stand a chance. Yeah. You can have this great strategy, but if your private is sitting there hungry tonight, you're not going to be able to pull off the mission. Yeah, that's because the private does the actual work. Uh, <laughs> as you know, the officers don't do shit. Uh, they just hang out. Uh, the, the enlisted man's doing all the work. So you got to kind of take care of them first is the general concept. But um, no, those are great wow. answers. Uh, I, I, I not, not, never served in the military, but uh, love reading about it. And uh, I guess the, the one the book made a, the point for was actually um, – general marshal in um you know mm-hmm. world war ii and just basically uh his philosophy was that it's okay to fire people well, not fire people but like relieve them of command give them an alternative command and then you know let them earn their way back up and so uh i think it was about you know teaching the culture of leadership and uh it's okay you know sometimes you know there's that principle where you get promoted to the worst job you're at right and that's you know you just naturally end up at the worst place so it's okay to rotate people in and out and so i think that's what uh, the book was critical of sometimes of, uh, you know, you have the best soldiers, you know, they have the best people underneath, but then, you know, sometimes the leadership is just not the best and it's okay to change leadership every now and then. And that was kind of his principle there. And Marshall was, I mean, I guess he never got relieved, but he was, he was willing to do it to other people underneath him. So, uh, and that's what they kind of instilled that culture. Yeah. Seems reasonable to me. Yep. Well, uh, I really, Wes, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Um, I, I've really enjoyed it. I feel like I've gained a lot of knowledge. So I know our listeners are going to gain a lot of knowledge as well here. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much, Wes. Really appreciate, appreciate it. Appreciate y'all having me on and uh, look forward to watch you guys grow and have a podcast with a million people listening here in a few years. <laughs> well, thank you Any so day much. Now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. Cool guys. Sounds well, this, good. Well, this has been Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian. And this is Michael. We'll have a new episode for you next week.